Welcome to the City of Refuge podcast, where our mission is to equip a diverse community of Christ followers to make him known. So this morning, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 15. I know you all have been doing the Psalms, Brandon told me. Um, unfortunately, uh, I've I been preparing this sermon, and so Willie, God had put this burden on my heart, and Brandon said that'd be, that'd be fine. So we're going to be looking at the New Testament in Acts chapter 15 this morning. And as you go there, though, I'm going to go back way, way, way in time, and even in the Bible, uh, to one of the earliest events in recorded history. Just after Adam and Eve choose to disobey God in the garden, the very next chapter, most of you all know what happens. They have two sons, Cain and Abel. And in that chapter, literally a heartbeat away from the garden, Cain rises up and strikes his brother down. And we see, and this is why the Bible, I wasn't raised a Christian when I first got introduced to Christian faith and the Bible, I just thought, man, this teaches truth. Because what's so profound about the Cain and Abel stories, it's, it's more than just a brother versus a brother. It encapsulates how early on in human history, violence, jealousy, strife, enmity can fill up a human heart and result in violence and war and all kinds of cruelty. Throughout human history, we know doesn't matter what culture, what time, what political system is in place, what doesn't, none of that matters. The human heart bends itself towards violence, towards strife. And a big component of that, probably the root of that, is in the garden, Adam and Eve ate that fruit to be like God. All violence begins with the thought, I am God. And I am going to enact my will upon you, however you individually or you as a community or you as a nation. And I will do that even by means of violence. Because you see here in Acts 15, I want to impress upon you my own personal conviction that this is one of the most critical events in human history. I bet you didn't think that. I bet you've read Acts chapter 15 a lot in your life. And just like me, when you're doing your quiet times, you read Acts 14, then you go to Acts 16, and it's cool stuff in Acts chapter 15, but it doesn't stand out to you as anything that big of a deal. But if you understood the cultural context of what was going on in the early church at this time, you realize how massively significant this event is, not only for the early church, but also for world history. So I set up quite a bit. Let's see if I follow through. Turn with me to Acts chapter 15, verse 1. And right now I'm going to read the first five verses. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others who were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. 
But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So what's going on here? If you go back a couple of chapters, God, as you probably know, God rescued Saul, the Pharisee, from his bent life, bent heart. Everything he was doing was all about uh, going after Christians and arresting them. They were at this time mostly Jewish. And God called him out, you know, and, and he opened his eyes and God converted, God saved Saul, called Paul. And God tell Paul, told Paul at that time, I have a mission for you. And in due time, his church in Antioch, which is a city, I don't know how miles-wise, it's north of Jerusalem. It's one of the first major cities you come to, uh, north of Jerusalem. There's a, 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 which by the way, this was the first probably diverse church, interestingly enough, Antioch. If you go read and ask the description of the church there, there were people from all over the Roman world in this little church. It's amazing. First diverse church. Well, they prayed, and, and the Holy Spirit told them to set apart Paul and Barnabas to go on a mission. And they do. So they go into the Greek-speaking world of the Roman world, like modern-day Turkey and Cyprus, and they begin to proclaim the gospel. And what happens is people start coming to faith, and they start planting churches. And so Paul then, after that, he's now come back to Antioch. And he's reporting what God has done. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're God, and if you're in line with God, this is time for a party. It would blow your mind if you're telling these people, we went to Cyprus and we proclaimed the gospel about Jesus being crucified and rose from the dead. And can you believe that the Holy Spirit worked and people came to faith and there's a church there now? We went to Turkey and these Gentile, these, which is an, an, a, another word for non-Jew, these people have no connection to Jewish faith. They just profess faith in our God, Yahweh. You would be throwing a party not only because it's cool that more people have come to faith in Christ, but you know that this is testifying to the reign of Jesus Christ. You would be throwing a party. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now that word saved there is not a euphemism. In the Greek, it is the same word for being saved, going to heaven, being with God. It's not some sort of lukewarm word that the English turns into it. It is it's saying, unless you get circumcised, you have no part in Jesus Christ. Unless you get circumcised, you are not going to heaven. Unless you get circumcised, you are not part of the people of God. This is a salvation issue. These are party crashers. They come and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait a minute now. Hold on. You see, God may be doing what you think he's doing, but we have our customs. And unless you start getting these people on board with our customs, we're not going to authorize these people in these churches. So this leads to a big argument. I actually think that the English here is very nice. And, and Luke is a little bit ironic. All of you can imagine that Thanksgiving meal or that family reunion or whatever it might be where someone says, no small dissension and debate was had among them. The language in Greek is strife and dispute. And it literally says no small in the Greek. No small strife and dispute. 
That's Luke's way of saying they had a big old fight. And if you read Paul's other letters, if you read Galatians, Paul is not one to hold back. When he thinks the gospel is threatened, he is going to lay it down. So you know, you can imagine being in the audience at this church and all of a sudden there's this big fight going on. No, I want to be careful. We don't know exactly what happened, but judging from the context, it was a pretty heated discussion. So they decide, okay, well, look, we are going to go to Jerusalem, to the council of Jerusalem, the, the, the appointed leaders of the church, and we are going to d- debate this and come down with a decision. Very Presbyterian of them, I might say. Um, so they do that. So they're sent on their way, and, and as they're going, they're going south. They travel through Phoenicia and Samaria, which, by the way, if you read earlier in Acts, God had already done some amazing things in Samaria. Jesus, when he was on earth, uh, the Gospel of John records the revival that took place in Samaria, and then the Samaritans were some of the first to receive the good news after Jesus' resurrection in, in Acts. So God has been doing revival in Samaria and in Antioch. So they're going down, they're sharing how God is continuing to do the work now in the Greek part of the Roman Empire. Everyone has cause to celebrate. So they go down. It says, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. I just want to pause right there. They did not declare all that they did. They did not say, Paul did not say, I went to this place and I planted this church. I preached the gospel. I am so smart. I have my strategies. I have my my data, whatever. He said, all that God had done with them. We'll get back to that a little bit later. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So you have a division. Let's, keep, let's be clear. It says some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. This is not non-believing Jews and Jewish Christians. These are believing Jews who feel the conviction that they need to continue to practice the laws of Moses as they, can, as they believe in Jesus. And then there are those like Paul, and we'll see here in a minute, Peter, saying that is not necessary. This was a major point of division and debate in the early church. And it's easy for us, there may be some actual Jewish people here, I don't know if you were raised Jewish, I won't make you raise your hand, but it's easy for us, for most of us who don't come out of that context, to go, well, come on, guys, give us the program. Obviously, you don't need the temple anymore. Obviously, you don't need to circumcise. Obviously, you don't need to follow Leviticus anymore. Come on, Doug, give us the program. But what you have to understand, what we have to understand is, is up until Jesus, they had been taught, and God himself gave, him, uh, gave them the, the, the uh, law. This was not man-made. God gave them the law. God instituted circumcision. These were things that the Jews had been told, these are how you follow me faithfully. So we want to be careful. It is so easy to just say, oh, come on, guys, what's wrong with you? But for thousands of years, God himself, through his prophets and through his scriptures, had called the people to follow him in this manner. And so they're really struggling. They're really confused. What part of our Jewish faith goes with us in this new age and what part no longer goes with us? It's a significant point of confusion for them. So I want to be careful. And we'll we'll get back to that here at the end. 
So they get together and they're having this debate. Verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and he said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So what's going on here is this is Peter talking. Peter, you know, Simon Peter, he followed through all the Gospels, the one who rejected Jesus, the one who Jesus embraced. And earlier in Acts, God had called him to go to a Gentile. And that's what he's talking about. If you go to Acts chapter 10, pull up here my, my notes. Acts chapter 10, beginning of verse 1, it says that there was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius. I won't go through all the details, but Cornelius was uh, following the Jewish faith as a Gentile. There were lots of laws about how far you could go as a Gentile in terms of what you could do and not do. There were still lots of divisions, but he was, he was following that line in what they call a proselyte. He was a Gentile who was believing in Yahweh through the Jewish faith. He'd been praying and been fervent, and God comes to him, and God says to him, I've heard your prayers. And so he says, send, uh, send some men to go to Joppa. And God doesn't really tell him what's going to happen. He just says some men to go, to go to Joppa. So they go to Joppa, and Cornelius doesn't know this, but at the same time that God is telling this to Cornelius, God gives Peter a vision. Now, I don't know about you, but this vision is one of those things where as you're an early Christian, you're going, okay, I have no idea what this means. Here's the vision, verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry, and he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him saying, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So what's going on here? Is Peter just hungry? Why is he having this vision? Which, by the way, three times is always a, 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 a notation of emphasis. Not once, not twice, right? You moms and dads, you know what I mean, right? I told you once, I told you twice, I told you three times to go clean your room. God, God, God tells Peter this vision not once, not twice, three times he gives him this vision. Because he wants Peter to get it. What does he want Peter to get? God instituted the dietary laws as a means of reinforcing to the Jews their separate status as God's chosen people. 
every time the Jews ate a meal, they were to follow a strict code of hand washing and everything else that was meant to remind them that they had been set apart by God as his covenant people. They took this so seriously that they refused. It was seen as um, profane to eat with non-Jewish people. Now, I don't know about you, but in this country, we know what it means when you don't share a table with someone who's not like you, don't we? We know what that means. In the Jewish mindset, you did not break bread with non-Jewish people. If you did, you were seen as a sinner. That's why in the Gospels, the Pharisees and others go, Jesus, why are you, if you're a prophet, if you're a rabbi, why would you even think about eating with those people? And, and those are mostly ethnic Jews. It was unthinkable in the Jewish mindset for most of them. I, I am generalizing here. I'm not saying there were not exceptions. But generally speaking, you did not eat with Gentiles. In fact, Peter himself in Galatians, we know after all these events, we know how powerful this was because Peter, uh, Paul has to confront him in Galatia later on because uh, Peter's eating with Gentiles. His, some other Jewish believers come into the church and Peter starts eating separately with them. And Paul calls him on it. So we know that this was a big deal in the early church for Jews. You did not eat with Gentiles. It was dirty. So God gives him this vision. And then uh, these men come from Joppa. They collect Peter. He's had these visions. He goes with them. And then the end of this chapter, Peter preaches the gospel to these Gentiles. Cornelius gathers all his house. He gets everyone together, his aunts, his uncles, everyone comes in for this, for this meeting. And Peter shows up. And I will say this, Cornelius shows Peter great respect, great honor. He gives Peter the floor. Peter has carte blanche to preach. He begins to preach. Verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among, listen to this, Verse 45, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Do not miss that word holy in spirit. What, the, what was blowing these Jews' mind, they were the holy people of God. Gentiles were unclean. The Holy Spirit is falling on the Gentiles. It blows their minds. We know we all have that other. We all have those people where it's easy for us to hold them in derision. It's easy for us to look down on them. It could be race, could be politics, could be geographic, could be a college like A&M and UT. God even works at UT, brother. It could be, right, we all have those things because in our hearts is pride. I'll get there at the end. So we can all relate to this. The Holy Spirit is falling even on them? I emphasize this 
Because back in Acts 15, Peter is saying, this is the work of God. We have to follow what God himself has shown us. He's leading the way. We have to follow. That's why he says, did you catch it in verse 10 of chapter 15? Peter says, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test? He says, you raising this question about circumcision, you're not causing just a problem in the church. You are putting God to the test. Because you're saying, God, who are you to let the Holy Spirit fall on those people? They're not circumcised. They're not following the law of Moses. God, who are you to, 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 to fall on them? They are testing God. And as you know, and, and as Peter knows from his own time with Jesus, it always goes badly for you when you test God. They're testing God. And he says, verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Friends, verse 11 is one of the most important verses in the New Testament. Because right here, you have the early church saying, we are not going to add to the gospel. We are not going to add culture, traditions, denominations, race, language. None of that is going to be added to the gospel. We are, we, meaning Jews, will be saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. This is one of the most important verses in the New Testament. It sets the church, humanly speaking, not only apart from all the world, we'll talk about that at the end, but it sets it in line with the mission of God. That the gospel is going to go forth, we are going to participate in that, and we are going to do our best to not get in the way by adding things to it. And then finally, verse 12, the end here. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them. Again, we say what God had done through them, not what they did, among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, which is Peter's Jewish name, Simeon has related, to how, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, this is James, the leader of the Jewish church. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. This is one of the most non-human events in human history. Humanly speaking, they should have said what we all in our flesh would say. Here's what I think worshiping God looks like. Make sure they go do that. Here's what I think uh, are the right customs that, that are in line with godliness. Make sure they go do those. No, they say we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. We don't want to get in the way. 
And then the rules they give, I won't go into detail now, but largely deal with, uh, back in those days, temples were everywhere. And temple worship was a central part of non, well, Jewish life too, but uh, of Gentile pagan life. Temples were everywhere. A good example is like if you go to, in America, it's hard for us to realize this because we are a secular nation by and large. But when I was in Taiwan, for example, there are temples all over the city. You walk into businesses, there are little Buddha statues everywhere. Every holiday, uh, every you know, uh, religious holiday is also a public holiday in a very religious way. So you walk into Ikea in Taipei, and there's a barrel outside where they're burning paper money to their ancestors. So, so in, in, the, in the Greek world, in, the, in Paul's world, that's what life was like. So when they give these requirements here, I'm not going to go into details, but they largely deal with um, basically saying to the Gentiles, you can't go participate in that worship in the temples anymore. You, we don't want you to do that. You go into more details, but that's essentially what he's saying there is, you know, to follow God, you can't worship idols at the same time or all of the practices associated with it. So that's all they say. And they leave it at that. Now, some people being Presbyterian could be like, man, I wish, our, I wish we only had so, you know, two or three things and that's all you had to do, but that's okay. Um, so a few applications here. First of all, that the human tendency toward pride is endemic to the human spirit. And that's why this event is so amazing. Because for thousands of years, the Jews have been doing these things. The fact that they could say, we are going to trust God and follow God and do what he's doing and let him lead the way. And we, we, we don't know what's going on. We're confused, but we're going to trust him. That is something only God himself could have brought about. There is no way, humanly speaking, that the Christian church could have grown out of the Jewish faith. There was a million human reasons why that never would have happened. How do you explain a faith where you can't even eat with a Gentile? Several years later, you're now worshiping in the same church together. The only way you can explain that is that God was at work. And all of us know how terrible it is when human divisions corrupt the gospel. America is still reeling, still reeling from that legacy of letting human institutions and hatred and evil and corruption corrupt the gospel. I wish for my own heart that the principles of Acts 15 sink down deep. And I, I wish to see a legacy in church history where that is the, the testimony the legacy that we testify to the world. But whatever is in your heart or my heart or as a church, whatever is in us as a church, as a corporate body that wants to bring about divisions, that wants to create rules or um, extra add-ons to the gospel, we always have to be looking at ourselves in the mirror and saying to ourselves, are we causing a stumbling block by adding something to the gospel? Secondly, one of the things I love about this is that it says that to be a Christian, you don't have to be circumcised, but you do have to be on board with what God is doing in the world. You see, it's so easy to think, well, I'm a Christian because I can check these boxes, A, B, C, D, and E. 
But if you can check those boxes but still be opposed to what God is doing in the world, I can't judge you, but I would, I would give you serious warning. If God is in the business of calling people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to follow him, and I'm standing in some way opposition to that, then do I really believe in God? Do I really get the gospel? Is Jesus really my Lord? Now, I know we all struggle with that. I struggle with it mightily. I have flesh. I'm a sinner. So I get that. But we ought to all be like the mind of, the, of, the, of this group here, these leaders. Here's what God is doing. How is he calling us to go and participate with him in that? Not standing in opposition. So when that person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, we don't go, well, now wait a minute. You need to become Presbyterian first if you want to be a real believer. Or you need to speak in tongues. Or you need to do this. Or you need to do that. Or you need to join this political party. Or you need to school your kids this way. Or you need to live here. Whatever we want to say, oh, but you need to do this too. We are getting in the way of God's work. There are essentials of the faith that they talk about in this chapter. Mainly that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But we do not want to add to that. And I would say that it is a terrible legacy when people proclaiming the name of Jesus stand in opposition to his name, his work, and his character. And we want to make sure that when we say we believe in Jesus, we are, we are seeking to participate in what he is doing in the world. And then finally, lastly, I want you to look to your left and look to your right and realize what a miracle it is that you're here this morning. There is no human reason why you should be here. With one another next to you, with rows over, the church is a miracle. It is the product, the fruit of the work of the Holy Spirit. Do you know that you're sitting in, in, the, in the evidence, the fruit of a miracle this morning? Not only for you personally, but for the corporate church, it is a miracle. Do not ever, it is easy for any of us, right, to get sick of the church, to one, your elders pull out whatever little hair you have left. I don't have much left. But what a miracle it is to be a part of the church of God. To celebrate. This is the only place in the world where people only have to have one requirement to be in. Belief in Jesus Christ. When the, I don't want to, you know, I'm not trying to blaspheme or, or speak ill, but when Islam conquered the, the, the world, the, the, the you know, uh, Middle East and so forth, you had to learn Arabic. When Christian missionaries go forth, I surely hope they don't require people to learn English. They shouldn't be. We, this morning, are worshiping God in English. People down the street, even in Houston, could be doing it in Vietnamese, in Korean, in Thai, in African languages I can't even speak. That is glory to God. And we are the only institution on earth that does that. If you ever get time in your life to worship, maybe you do here, with other believers in another language, it is it's mind-blowing. Because you realize how diverse God's people are. And what a miracle it is to be a part of it. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, all of us can testify that in our hearts, we're part of the problem. That your church would be so much better if we weren't getting in the way. That our own sin, our pride, can cause personal and relational divisions in our community, in our church. 
that we can also so easily fall into the worldly habits of judging other groups of people, of dehumanizing them, of being annoyed by them, of having a judgmental heart towards them. And God, what, we, what I long for and what I pray for my brothers and sisters here is that the gospel that we were dead in our trespasses and sins and made alive together with Christ by the Spirit, by grace, that these would so transform our hearts on a regular basis that we would be disgusted with ourselves when we rise up in pride or in judgmentalism or in anger towards a fellow brother or sister in Christ or toward those who worship God in a way different from us. Give us a heart and a spirit of generosity, of love, and of celebration at all the ways you have saved each and every one of us. In Jesus' name, amen.